You know, if our nation's founding fathers were with us today, I wonder how they would view the evolution of the nation they envision. Well, tonight's guest, Tom Ricks, believes that in order to understand the founders' true intentions, we need to consider how Greek and Roman philosophy inspired their vision for the United States. Tom Ricks is the author of the new book, First Principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how that shaped our country. And he's gonna be joined in conversation by one of the council's favorite speakers and a very good friend, Professor Jeremy Suri. But first, let me remind you that you can purchase a copy of First Principles by going to our independent bookstore here in Dallas and terabangbooks.com and just type in that code DFWWORLD and you get a 10% discount. I wanna take a, a minute too to thank our program sponsors. Uh, they happen to be directors of the World Affairs Council, Mike Wadsworth, along with his wife, Mitzi, and Gary Wallens. And to all of you who continue to support our programs by being patrons of each program, we're so grateful. And you can do that by donating $500 or $1,000 and, and just contact me or one of our staff and we'll be glad to help you select a program that you might like to support. Also wanna thank our promotional partner for this evening, the Yale Alumni Club of Dallas-Fort Worth. But to keep up with all of our programs, you can go to our website at dfwworld.org or I hope you'll subscribe to our channel on YouTube and that's at DFW World as well. So let me just tell you a little bit about Jeremy. We've had, uh, as you know, a really strong internship program at the World Affairs Council. And so many of our interns uh, talk about Jeremy. He truly is one of the most highly sought after professors at the University of Texas at Austin. He holds there the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs. Gotta tell you about his son, Zachary, because he and Zach host the podcast, This is Democracy. Jeremy is the author of lots of books, probably a dozen, to the point where here in my office, my bookshelves, uh, there's actually a Surrey section. I wanna take a second just to especially recommend two books, Henry Kissinger, The American Century, and his most recent, The Impossible Presidency. No, it's not about President Trump. It's titled <laughs> The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, which traces how the position has evolved perhaps necessitating a change in structure. Jeremy, now I get to sit back and listen to you and Tom, thanks. Jim, thank you so much. Uh, I'm so honored and delighted to be here. Uh, my only regret is that I couldn't make the trip up to Dallas. I so enjoy spending time with you and with, with uh, your entire community. Uh, I have the opportunity, as I know Tom Ricks does, to speak at many World Affairs Councils and, and the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth World Affairs Council is easily uh, the, the best one. There's a sense of community, a sense of ongoing dialogue, friendship, bipartisanship, uh, which is so rare in our society today. And, and Jim, you just do such a wonderful job in putting on programs. And, and I'm just, I, I'm, I'm honored to play some small role in it and, and to be a friend of yours and a friend You're of- You're too kind, thank you. Get on with the program, Jeremy. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So uh, everyone knows Tom Ricks, I'm sure. Uh, it's really wonderful that this, this event is co-sponsored by the Yale Alumni Club, as both Rick, Tom and I are Yale alums, actually. Uh, Tom is probably, and I think really without doubt, the best writer on contemporary military affairs and military history in the United States today. Uh, he's written a number of books that are absolutely seminal to the way we think about recent military history and more distant military history. Uh, of course, everyone knows his book, Fiasco, 
on the lead up to the Iraq war, his book Gamble on the Surge. He wrote a wonderful book on two of my uh, favorite characters, Churchill and Orwell, which I highly recommend uh, to all of you. He is also the uh, military history columnist now for the New York Times Book Review. In the past, in his past lives, he uh, was also a writer for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And today we're gonna talk about this extraordinary book he's written uh, that I had the great fortune to read. I hope all of you will buy it and read it. First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and the Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. Tom, I thought I'd begin by asking you maybe to talk a bit about what you talk about in your prologue, why you wrote this book, what brought you to write this book in 2016? Sure. Uh, it was almost exactly four years ago. It was right after the election of Donald Trump on that first Wednesday morning in November 2016. I woke up. It was a gray morning here in my house in Maine. And I thought to myself, what just happened last night? I don't understand. I did not expect Donald Trump to be elected president. He, I don't think he understands um, what this country is about, but clearly 40 or 50% of American voters thought he did. And so I said, I've really got to sit down and think about this. And I've been taught in college, and thank you to the Yale alumni for sponsoring this, because I think I got a decent education at Yale. I went down to my library and I said, let's go back to first principles. Let's go back to foundational issues. And I took down Aristotle's politics and reread it in the context of the election of Donald Trump. I was actually trying to think, is there such a thing as a democratic oligarchy? That is an oligarchy ruled by the rich with the trappings of democracy. And Aristotle does discuss that a bit. By the way, he warns that oligarchy is the least stable form of government. Um, and I think you've seen that in the experience of the last four years, whether or not you're a fan of Donald Trump, it has been a very unstable form of governance, uh, a very personal form of governance that didn't seem to understand the constitutional limits on the presidency. Somehow I think Donald Trump thinks thinks that Alexander Hamilton succeeded in the design of the presidency to make it a monarchy. Because Trump seemed to think he was king and was constantly surprised when he stubbed his toes on the judiciary or on Nancy Pelosi telling him, no, you can't do that. I don't work for you. And that seemed foreign to him. But that began for me a four year long journey of reading the classical literature on politics and governance. And that led me to a lot of the comments of the revolutionary generation. And I came to realize uh, through some of the good academic research on this by Carl Richards, Carolyn Winterer and others, how much the revolutionary generation was influenced by the ancient world. And I think that uh, American historians in the 20th century were kind of mistaken by emphasizing John Locke. I don't even think John Locke was the most important influence on um, coming out of Great Britain. I think the Scots were much more important, much more influential. And the Scots were themselves coming out of the classical tradition. Uh, a lot of what they were thinking and writing about was, uh, there you go, David Hume. Uh, he's thinking and writing about uh, Roman history, Roman demography. Similarly, Montesquieu in France, very influential, kind of the, the inventor of the modern liberal government based on balance and toleration and public sovereignty, limited 
by limits on freedom, um, to balancing freedom with justice. All of that uh, for Montesquieu comes very much out of Roman history. If you go to Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws, it begins uh, with hundreds of pages about Roman history. And so I found myself steeped first in the books they read, the histories they read, the literature they read. And it increasingly became clear to me that the ancient world of the founders, the what the revolutionary generation considered the ancient world, was very different from ours. For example, they were much more focused on Rome than they were on Greece. Uh, to them, the central political narrative of world history was the decline of the Roman Republic. And this was key to them because there weren't a lot of republics to study as they thought about forming their own. You have the very short and sad example of the English Commonwealth under Cromwell about 120 years earlier than the American Revolution, but they didn't see a lot of answers in that because it was so short-lived and because Cromwell becomes a dictator, turns power over to his son. Right. And, and so I they thought look, we, again, I was gonna say, we can go into, we, I was gonna ask you more questions just about that. Uh, but before we get to that, Tom, I, I, one thing that you do so well in this book is you really uh, paint a, a picture of the world that the key figures for you grow up in. I mean, you, you, there's, there are wonderful biographical sketches in here of Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton. Um, but maybe to share with our audience, how was it that these men who were, in a sense, on the frontier, they were in the sticks, and the, the United States was a backwater. Uh, how was it that they had such connection to the classical world? How did they develop that connection? Well, to be an educated man, to be a white male educated man of wealth, a very narrow portion of the population, uh, to be a gentleman, you, there were certain understandings. And one was that you would read Greek and Latin. Uh, this came out of kind of out of preparation to be a lawyer or to be a minister. But it was basically seen as also necessary for participation in public life. You had to understand the frame of reference and for them, the frame of reference, the political vocabulary is very much Roman history and in the background, Greek history. By the way, uh, they tended to prefer Sparta to Athens, right. unlike today. Uh, right. Samuel Adams said he wanted Boston to be a modern Sparta. Athens was seen as kind of goofy, too democratic, kind of noisy. The exception here is, as he always is an exception, is Thomas Jefferson, right. who was more Greek than Roman, uh, more into Epicurus, than the Stoic philosophers. Uh, and from, from that, you get this very Epicurean declaration of independence. And, and but, I, that's what I was gonna ask you about actually, just to go right into that. You, you also reprint the Declaration of Independence at the end of the book. You have some wonderful descriptions about it. I, just, just following on where you were going, what, what were the influences on Jefferson for the Declaration? Uh, there is a bit of Locke. I don't wanna say Locke wasn't there at all. For example, um, Locke has a phrase, life, liberty, and estate, that is property. And I love the tweak that Jefferson makes from property to the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he writes in the Declaration. The difference is the difference between being a landed owner of property, which is a very small group, to being able to pursue happiness, which is the entire population. It, this has the effect of really opening the political arena it's not just the people of property that we're running the state for. It is the entire population, or at least the entire white male um, population with some property. 
And I think actually, just as, as an aside, I think today's Supreme Court is much too much focused on property. Uh, they really have become the Supreme Court of property rights. And I think they've overemphasized the market and neglected a lot of other aspects that influence the founders. Um, I keep on thinking of the phrase general welfare, right. um, which comes along with um, the common defense twice in the Constitution. Yet we don't talk about the general welfare, which is to say the common good these days. And I, frankly, if we had thought more about the general welfare, we would have, I think, approached the virus epidemic very differently. We have lost a public good, public health, mm -hmm. because uh, we have a government. This is a bit obscure, but I think our government for the last four years has effectively been an Articles of Confederation government, a weak central government uh, that really doesn't do much except tweet. And the governors, in response to this epidemic, trying to run around and deal with things in the same way that under the Articles of Confederation, the governors were basically independent states. Mm -hmm. So we're coming to the end of our modern Articles of Confederation, I think, now. Interesting, interesting. You have a lot to say about Jefferson in here, and you don't, you're not always uncritical, or I should say you are sometimes critical of, of Jefferson. What are his limitations from your point of view? The big surprise to me in writing this book was how my estimation of George Washington and James Madison increased. Uh, there's a saying among American historians that the more you know about Washington, the more you appreciate him. And I think the same is true of James Madison. By contrast, my opinions of John Adams and of Thomas Jefferson went way down. Uh, John Adams, I think, has unfairly enjoyed a boomlet in recent years because of the David McCullough uh, biography, which is really, I think, a biography of a very nice marriage, but, but really uh, played down a lot of Adams' screaming faults, like his vanity and his reactionary presidency. Uh, you know, in which we, he's not this cute, cuddly Paul Giamatti figure that we know from the HBO series. Likewise, Jefferson, I feel such an ambivalence about him. There was no question the Declaration of Independence is a beautiful document. It is a great work of political theory and a great work of literature. And there's no other documents I can think of that are quite both that. Maybe unless some of the ancient Roman and Greek uh, histories. Jefferson, though, never lives up to his words. Um, there's such a gap between what he says and what he does, and what he says when he's in Paris and what he says when he's in Virginia. In Paris, he denounces slavery and says it's a terrible thing. He comes back to Virginia and seems to act like the other plantation owners and never does anything about it. By contrast, for example, Washington was disturbed by slavery, took steps to try to ease some of the pain inflicted by running a slave labor camp, which is what a plantation is. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. And actually, at the end of his life, after his presidency, Washington began to study abolitionism. 
There's no evidence that I can see that Jefferson ever took the issue of slavery quite as seriously as Washington did. Jefferson also has a couple of other strikes against him. One thing that just irks me personally is he lived all of his life within sight of the Blue Ridge Mountains, yet he never went west of them. His father did. His father traveled all over the frontier. And it wasn't that Jefferson didn't like to travel. When he lived in, in Paris, he traveled all over Europe. I think it was simply that he wasn't interested somehow in the discomfort of frontier travel. And of course, the big strike against him has to be slavery. Uh, there's no plainer way I could say it than he's one big hypocrite, that he never lives up to his words. And it basically, he's a dreamer of liberty who lives off the sweat of enslaved people. And that makes him a pretty common Virginia uh, landed elitist of the time, right? I mean, it would fit, fit what others would. Uh, your, your description of Washington, as you already referred to, is I think one of the real strengths of the book. And, and in my reading of it, Washington is the hero, uh, if there's a hero. And, and uh, it's striking because you, you, and I want you to comment on his classical, uh, his, his reaches to classical uh, references and the ways in which the classical world influenced him. But unlike Jefferson and Madison, and Hamilton, he didn't go to college. He didn't have that uh, academic background. So how did he come to the classical world? We don't often think of Washington in that way. And then tell us more about why you like him so much. Good question. I would say the two heroes of this book are Washington and Madison, who play kind of interesting parallel roles at different times. Uh, Washington is such an interesting figure to me because there is such a lively life behind that marble facade he spends his life building. Uh, he is a man of volcanic temper. Uh, he spends a lot of his early life learning how to control that temper. And he still isn't able to completely do it. Uh, he totally, there's no other way to say it, he lost his shit on the battlefield twice. Uh, in the Battle of New York and Manhattan, and later at the Battle of Monmouth. And as cabinet secretary, he just blows his stack one day and you can see Jefferson writing down. And he's kind of astonished. Uh, by God, I'd rather be in my grave than put up with more of this criticism, says, says Washington. And, and Jefferson says, I'm not gonna say a word. I'm just gonna write this down and, and let this blast go by me. Uh, his other great vulnerability is his lack of education, as you said. Alone among the first four presidents, he doesn't read Greek, he doesn't read Latin, he doesn't read French. He never tra travels abroad except one trip to the West Indies. He's not particularly well read, even in English. Uh, his strength though, is he's conscious of this vulnerability. He had seen what happens to arrogant generals who don't learn. He'd seen that in the French and Indian War with the, the defeat of Braddock. And he comes into the revolution having had 20 years to think about the defeat at the French and Indian War early on that he was part of. And coming into the revolution, he's still rather young. He's 44 years old when he's named commander of the non-existent United States Army. He's the first soldier in the army. And he tells an aide, I am conscious of a defect, defective education. Um, and so were the people around him. At one point, John Adams and um, Timothy Pickering uh, two officials in his administration had a, a round of drinks and a discussion uh, about President Washington 
about whether he was illiterate or not. And Pickering says, um, I'm telling you, he's illiterate. And John Adams said, no, when I was in Congress, his letters from the front were very informative, very well written. And Pickering spotted, he said, those were written by Hamilton. Washington didn't write those. And it's true, Hamilton is a writer of such vigor and energy. I have a lot of problems with Hamilton, but there's no question he's the best writer among the revolutionary generation. So Washington learns to take care of his vulnerabilities. Okay, I'm not a good writer. Okay, uh, I need to be, control my temper. And he does these things and he learns. And he goes into the revolution, a pretty conventional thinker. He wants to be an English officer. He thinks and acts like an English officer. And he gets his butt kicked. He gets his butt kicked across Long Island, across Manhattan. He gets chased across New Jersey. And by December of, 18, of 1776, he thinks he might be losing this war. And he writes privately, the game may well near be up. But he learns, and that's to his great credit. Uh, he's not a man of words, so it's hard to chase down. But in a nonverbal way, I think he's a genius. And I think academic historians haven't appreciated this because they are such people of words, like journalists are, that it's hard to recognize the genius of a nonverbal person. But you see this in soldiers especially. In fact, in the US Army, one unit motto still is, deeds, not words. And Washington embodies that. And, and you talk about his Fabian strategy, and you're not the first to write about it, but you, you write about it in a different way from others. I'm, I'm curious if you'd share that with us. Sure. Uh, Fabian strategy is a reference to Fabius, a uh, Roman general who successfully takes on Hannibal during a more than a decade long of warfare by basically refusing to fight Hannibal. He makes Hannibal chase him around Italy. Hannibal has a good cavalry, so he stays in the hills where the cavalry are less helpful. Uh, Washington is not a natural Fabian fighting this kind of evasive defensive strategy. And it especially intrigued me because this is another area where the academic historians have gotten it wrong, most notably Joseph Ellis, but also Alan Lengel. Uh, first of all, they simply confuse two different things, a war of post, which is fighting a defensive war from fortresses, and a Fabian strategy, which doesn't seek battle at all, which seeks to avoid battle, to wear out the enemy. And it works slowly and successfully for Washington. He's a reluctant Fabian. He's a naturally aggressive commander. But he sees again and again, with the troops I have, I can't fight direct battles. The militia, especially, will run in terror if they face volleys from well-trained, well-drilled, seasoned British troops, and, and who then follow up with a terrifying bayonet charge. But he's, he realizes to criticize the militia for not being like regular troops is like criticizing a hammer for not being a saw. Different tools have different uses and you need to learn to use them effectively. And to Washington's credit as a commander, he learns what the strengths of the militia are and what the weaknesses are. If you allow the militias to fight in familiar territory in the hills and the forest they know, they will be more effective. They are very good at gathering intelligence. They know who to trust in their own areas and who not to trust. And they're especially good at skirmishing and attacking foraging parties. And that's key. And this is another thing I think that's been underemphasized about Washington's generalship. Battles only occur occasionally, but armies eat every day. 
And the British Army is sitting in New Jersey uh, trying to chase down Washington. And it has to eat every day. And it's going out looking for food in small foraging parties. And every day, one soldier gets killed, two soldiers gets killed, uh, maybe three are captured, maybe two desert. And in the six months after the battles in New York, where Washington fought poorly and got kicked out of New York, in those six months, the British army dwindles by more than 50% to desertion, to wounding, to capture, to the myriad things that can happen to an army. And so it's a very effective strategy and Washington comes to appreciate it. And by the end of the war, he actually has a lot of praise for the militia. It, it seems, Tom, that it's such an obvious thing to do. Um, and you point out how it was counterintuitive to Washington. It, just because of your vast knowledge in this area, why is it so counterintuitive to so many military leaders? Why, why do we fall into the mistake of the British, it seems to me, time and again in our own activities overseas as a modern nation? I think it's a matter, first of all, of stakes of concentration. Washington and the people around him, the people who signed the declaration, knew that the stakes were huge for them. That if they lost this war, they at best they would go into exile and more likely would lose their property and their lives. They would be hanged. And that does concentrate the mind. And you see this in the English generals who don't have concentrated minds during the war. The English generals come and go. Johnny Burgoyne, a better, um, better dramatist than general, is not really that interested in the war. The other British generals don't learn, they don't adjust. They fight rather conventionally. And look, if you're the biggest military power in the world, I'm the biggest guy in the block is the feeling, why should I change? And that's very similar to the way the US military has operated in the last 20 years in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. We're number one, other people learn from us, we don't learn from you guys. Well, that, that kind of arrogance and the failure to examine assumptions is what makes you lose wars. I was doing a conversation last night with General James Mattis, uh, former Marine General and then Secretary of Defense. And he said, the sad fact is that most generals do not learn, that they're too old to learn, that it's hard to change, they don't understand the war, and so they don't know how to change. It's, and the most dangerous thing is believing your own BS, uh, not examining your own assumptions, and not reflecting after every action, what did that just teach me? Because your enemy is learning too. What works today will not necessarily work tomorrow in the most fundamental way, for example, an infantry patrol that takes the same route it took yesterday is setting itself up to get killed. Sure, I love your line that people start to believe their own BS. Uh, I, I wanna encourage people to put questions up in, the, in our question forum. We already have one up there, that, which I'm gonna to come to in a second, but please uh, put up your questions. I know Tom with his, this wonderful book he's written and his vast knowledge has a lot to share with all of us. I do wanna stay on Washington for one more question though, Tom. Uh, how was Washington able to stay humble even after this great victory uh, to the point where as president, uh, he was willing to, first of all, act in, in a humble way as you show, um, and then of course, lead the presidency in such a humble way. How did he stay humble? Well, uh, John Adams thought it was a big act. And it may have been a big act, but sometimes big acts are important. Uh, 
Washington had these Roman role models. First, uh, he is the Cato, um, the public man of Rome who is frugal, wise, careful, and prudent. That's who he wants to be. That's what every public man aspires to be. Second, during the war, he becomes Fabius. At the end of the war, as you say, he puts down his sword, like Cincinnatus, the kind of mythical Roman general who left his plow to lead, lead the army into a battle, won the war, and then went back to his waiting plow. Uh, and most importantly is the Roman role he doesn't take, Julius Caesar. Right. At the end of the war, he voluntarily just yields power. And he's always conscious during the war to submit to the authority of Congress. Even when other generals are saying this is nonsense, when his officers are saying, let's push Congress around, when Alexander Hamilton is conspiring like a spider to use the army to force Congress to raise revenue, Washington keeps his eye on the main thing, which is no, we're trying to create a republic here. And the worst thing we could have is a general who seizes power. I think it was Gary Wills, right, who wrote years ago that Washington understood sometimes you have more power in ceding power, in resigning, than in trying to claw every little bit of power that you have, right? It is. It's one of those great paradoxes that the most powerful thing you can do is give up power. I think there's a scene in Hamilton where um, King George says he gave up power voluntarily. <laughs> so we have some wonderful questions coming in here from the uh, very learned audience. Uh, Thomas uh, Jodwich asks, uh, what were the lessons from the fall of the Roman Republic for, for these founders? They took uh, several lessons from the fall of the Roman Republic. And I want to emphasize not all of them were good or correct lessons. Uh, the first lesson was be careful of military power. Julius Caesar takes over. And they saw that as a calamity. But they also um, saw faction as one of the causes of the decline of, of, the, of the Republic. And especially John Adams, they had a terror of faction, uh, factionalization in politics, what we would just call partisanship, they saw as the beginning of collapse. It's almost an act of treason if you engage in, in faction. You should be virtuous. You should just be public spirited. That was the expectation. Uh, the third lesson they took away from Roman history, which is, was uh, that slavery is okay. And they, they write it into the Constitution. Slavery is not just a blot on the fabric of America. Slavery is woven into the fabric of America. And we are still trying to pull those threads out, not entirely successfully. They wrote slavery into the Constitution which almost guaranteed we'd have a civil war. And I think we are still in the reconstruction phase from the American Civil War. Uh, it's only in my lifetime that black Americans were raised from second class citizenship. And even now, the words doesn't seem to have gotten to some policemen around America, that black people have equal rights before the law and are to be treated equally. Uh, so I have some real problems with their reading of Roman history. They don't, weren't always correct in it, but there's no question in my mind that that's where their political vocabulary came from. 
And one thing you notice is in the 19th century, as classicism declines and becomes less important, it's one of the chords that held together North and South was that common reference to Greek and Roman history. And when that classicism starts to wash out, there's one less thing holding the country together. It's a really interesting point, actually. I had not, I had not thought of it that way before. That's very insightful. Uh, Don Llewellyn asks about um, Sun Tzu. Uh, he, he notices, as I think many of us do, some overlap in Washington's thinking and Sun Tzu. Did, did Sun Tzu have an influence on Washington's thinking? I don't think so. Uh, I don't see any references to it. Washington did read European military theorists, uh, but I, I don't, I've never came across any reference to Sun Tzu, which actually would have impressed me and I would have noticed, I think. Right. I'm not sure Sun Tzu was even widely read within the United States at that time. I think it comes to, probably comes to the US later, it would be my guess. Um, David uh, uh, Mazuga asks a great question about other generations of political military leaders, the, the Lincolns, the Grants, the Marshalls, the Eisenhowers, did, did the principles you're describing, especially their classical roots, did they have an influence either directly or indirectly on these other military figures? I don't think so, except in the transmission from the founders. Uh, Lincoln is steeped in Shakespeare and the Bible, but I don't see Lincoln um, reading much classical literature. But it may not be, it may be that they didn't have to. Once you have the declaration, you have this Epicurean declaration of all men being created equal. I mean, that's a great aspiration that this country still strives to live up to. And it resonates again and again. Lincoln refers to it in the Gettysburg Address. The, the women suffragists refer to it in putting together the first women's convention. Martin Luther King quotes it in his I Have a Dream speech. Harvey Milk quotes it in the beginnings of the gay liberation movement. Again and again, uh, it is a goal for America to reach out to. And the Constitution is steeped uh, in ancient Greek history, especially. Uh, James Madison, before the Constitutional Convention, spent four years sitting in a library in the upstairs of his house, reading ancient Greek history of the republics and the federations, trying to figure out why do republics fail? Why do they fall apart? Uh, what makes a sustainable confederation? Why does Montague say that republics have to be small? And what do we do? Because we're gonna have a big republic here, we need to design somehow. Uh, he, he actually has Jefferson send him literally trunk loads of books. And Madison prepares and prepares for this and shows up in Philadelphia, the first guy, at the Constitutional Convention, basically with the plan. Here's how I think we should redesign the United States. And there's a lot of that Greek thinking in there. Why do we have two senators from every state? Because one of the most important of the ancient Greek leagues of city-states decided that no matter how big or small the city-state was, it would have two votes at its meetings. And they said, well, that worked for them, so let's, let's do it um, for the United States. So now you have tiny Wyoming with 250,000 registered voters having the same number of senators as California with whatever, uh, what is it, uh, 25 million registered voters or somewhere 30, else around there? 30 million, I think. Uh, actually, yeah. 30 million. So it's, it's not the population, probably, I'm thinking probably about 13 million registered voters out of the population. Uh, 
so subsequent generations are able to subsist kind of on the intellectual capital that's encapsulated in our found, foundational documents that are drawn from Greece and Rome. Great. Uh, so let's see. Uh, building on that, the question of alliances comes up. Uh, Howard Townsend asks uh, about the significance, the importance of the, the, the earliest alliance the Americans have, the alliance with France and the French Navy. Uh, and then, of course, how we don't maintain that alliance thereafter. This is something that always fascinates my students, right? We rely on the French, then as soon as we can, we cut them off. Uh, what does that tell us about Washington? What does it tell us about this generation? I think it tells us that Washington was smarter than he looked, uh, <laughs> that he knew you don't want to let either of the great powers facing you, England or France, uh, get a, a toehold sufficient uh, in the United States to make it a proxy state. Washington personally remains very friendly to the French. One of his first acts after the end of the war uh, is he writes a long letter to Lafayette inviting him to travel all around in a great circle up through the Great Lakes, down the Mississippi, through the South. He's just dreaming, he wants to see the whole country. Uh, by the way, your question about the French also reminds me of another one of my pet peeves about John Adams. Throughout the war, John Adams believes he's a military expert. And I have no idea why. He didn't know anything about military affairs. He wasn't that well read in it. And he never served. Yet he's writing these letters saying, everybody talks about this Fabian War. I'm tired of it. I say, let's have a quick, decisive action and get this thing over with, which was crazy. And Washington knew it. Uh, but Adams is hammering on about how that's the way to go. And another th thing he says is, no alliances with the French. We don't need them. Well, the French were decisive in the war. We won at Yorktown because of French money, French troops, and French ships. I think we may have actually had more French troops at Yorktown than, uh, than American troops. Um, Rochambeau had a large presence there. We certainly know that the Virginians in the Williamsburg area preferred the French to the Americans because the French had hard cash money, gold and silver. And the Americans were just had these continental dollars, which were proverbially worthless. So just building on that, one of the seminal moments in our early history is, of course, Washington's farewell address. Uh, when he articulates, first of all, that it's appropriate to move on and not stay president forever, uh, but also articulates what becomes really our first foreign policy doctrine, right? No entangling alliances, uh, friendship and commerce with the world, the gentle hand of commerce, but not alliances. It, 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 do we understand this correctly or, or does your analysis lead us to think of it, especially in a classical frame in a different way from how we, we would otherwise? I think that's absolutely correct. And it's interesting one of the things he's very conscious of throughout his presidency is setting norms, trying to fill out the bones of the Constitution with the flesh of norms. And one of the norms he establishes is a two-term presidency and then step down in a peaceful transfer of power uh, to someone else. I've been hammering, hammering on Adams here, so I do want to say one, John Adams' two great achievements are he gets the revolutionary ball rolling before the revolution and at the other end of his career, he turns over power peacefully to the opposition. The first time in American history, he's a one-term president. Now this might begin to sound kind of familiar. He's bitter because he has been voted out of office. He's mad at the American people. He's so mad and so cranky 
that he doesn't even show up to Jefferson's inauguration. Right. Nonetheless, his great achievement is turning over power to the opposition, for which we should all remember him with gratitude. Right. And I wish that Donald Trump knew more about John Adams. And, and we, we will get to the present or, or closer to the present soon. I do, before we, 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 before we move up to the present and, and really the last part of your book, which talks about these principles as they relate to today, I, I do want to give you a chance to say a little bit more about James Madison because he's so important to your book. He is one of the other heroes in your book, as you say. And uh, you bring out so well uh, his brilliance in, in thinking about the Constitution. And I think of these famous figures, he's the one people actually know the least about. So what, what should we know about uh, Madison? What, what really jumped out at you in this book? Arguably, James Madison is the most important figure in the creation of the United States. Not in winning the revolution, but in creating the nation that eventually emerged from the revolution. Uh, and it's all the more remarkable because he is not an impressive figure. He's about five foot one. He weighs about 110, 120 pounds. He does not have a good speaking voice. He has a lousy speaking voice. He doesn't give good speeches. Uh, he has some form of epilepsy that makes him frail. And he's not really a sociable guy. Nonetheless, despite those shortcomings, and, and problems. He is at once a great political theorist and a great politician. We all know that he plays a key, a key role in getting the Constitutional Convention to come together. Then he shows up with kind of, hey, fellas, I've actually written a plan here. And he presents the plan. He doesn't win on everything. He wanted the federal government to have veto power over state laws. He thought that was crucial. He didn't get it. But nobody got everything they wanted. There's an academic um, theory that I really quite like. I've read it in Alan Taylor, but I think it goes back to the early 20th century that the constitution is best read as a peace treaty. It's a kind of a deal between a bunch of different states. And there are a lot of compromises in it, including unfortunately the compromise on slavery because Georgia and South Carolina said, if there's a whiff of abolition in here of getting rid of slavery, we walk. And if we walk, if we're outside the United States, that meant that either, South, that either England or France might get a toehold back on the North American continent, that those little states couldn't protect themselves, so they would have to have foreign alliances. And you're suddenly on the slippery slope, you're back involved in European politics. Then after, Madison, after the convention, leaves the campaign for ratification. As Danielle Allen uh, writes in her wonderful book, Our Declaration, sometimes American history seems to be James Madison talking and writing to himself. You know, he helps write you know, a speech for Washington, then he writes the congressional response, then he writes Washington's letter thanking the Congress for their response. Uh, Madison's great achievement that I think is really overlooked is he and Jefferson then in the 1790s basically say we have to go with political parties that relying on public virtue, on a lack of self-interest is not gonna work. And so they start talking about an opposition politics. It drives Washington nuts. It drives Hamilton around the bend and they form an opposition in the 1790s that wins an election and takes power in 1800. And Madison, I think, plays the role in the 1790s that Washington played during the revolution 
being the person who has strategic insight to say, you know, what we've been doing here isn't working, but here's another approach. Why don't we try this? And, and in the book, that's the point, just where you are chronologically, where you say this classical world begins to dissipate. Uh, and you talk, you talk about industrial change, you talk about a new generation. Tell us why you see uh, an end point to this classical world. Well, the more democratic America becomes, the more people are included in the power structure that don't know the classical world, that don't care for it, and want to make their own decisions. Can you see the market revolution coming in? And the market dominates not just in commerce, but in religion and in politics. You get people offering different things. I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. This is what I believe Christianity should be. And another guy says, no, I think this is what Christianity should be. And a lot of different approaches become popular. Holding out against this to the Federalist. No, fellas, they say, let the elites run the country. We know what's what. Stay in your place. It works okay as long as George Washington's around. That's all the Federalists need. But when Washington's dead, it kind of is like pulling the cork out of a champagne bottle. Without Washington, the Federalists have nothing. And John Adams is standing there, and he wants to be like Cicero, the great um, Roman politician of the decline of the Republic. And Cicero is all about stability and keeping things together. And Adams says, all you people are destabilizing the country. That's bad. Criticizing the president is a form of treason. And he starts throwing opposition newspaper editors in jail. There are about 160 newspapers in America at that point. And he attacks 25 of them, puts in jail 12 of the editors of the opposition newspapers. And they go into courts in which all the judges are Adam supporters. And they get indicted. They get thrown in jail. They go after Thomas Greenleaf, who edits a Federalist newspaper in New York City. He dies of smallpox, so they go after his wife, who takes over the paper. She gets ill, so they go after his printer and throw him in jail. This was, in Adam's view, the way to preserve stability of the country. In retrospect, though, it was profoundly reactionary, and it really ended the Federalist rule of the country and, I think, opened the door for Thomas Jefferson and a broader, more democratic approach. And it brings us back to this longstanding debate that we're always in, right, of republic versus democracy. What's, what's the right balance? I want to bring us up closer to the present because we have a whole bunch of questions about that, and you have a lot to say about that in the, in the latter part of the book. Uh, Raymond Termini, who's been waiting a while, he put his question up a while ago, asks about the current Middle East, uh, a region you, of course, know very well, Tom, and how Trump's activities there um, either embody um, lessons or non-lessons from, from, from the world you've described here? I think all too often authors and journalists need to say, I don't know. Yeah. And I'm going to say, I don't know. I spent the last four years in the 18th century. Uh, and believe me, it was a treat. Uh, coming back to Trump's America has been a rather sad experience in the last month. I, I agree in so many ways, Tom, with that. And I appreciate your humility and modesty on, on that point, too. Um, so in, in many ways, we have a number of questions from Don Llewellyn, David Mazuka, uh, that come back to this general point that you turned to in the, in the last two chapters, particularly the last chapter. What do we learn from that moment for today? Not commenting on current leaders today, 
Uh, you have a whole series of principles in your last chapter you lay out. What, what, what are the big takeaways for us uh, other than that, wow, that was an extraordinarily interesting period? Well, the first broad point is something we, we all know but don't kind of recognize. We live in the house that these people designed. If you want to understand this country, you need to understand not just the documents, but their vocabulary, their understanding of the world, and what they were trying to achieve in, in, in their actions and their writings. The second thing is I think we can go back with that understanding and perhaps have a different view of some of those words. I was struck again and again at how we don't talk about the general welfare of the people, the public good. General welfare appears twice in the Constitution, in the preamble, and then later, right next to common defense. Now, I'm sensitive to common defense. I covered the US military for decades. We talk much more about national security than we talk about the public good, about general welfare. And this strikes me especially because the Supreme Court has been so focused on market mechanisms uh, and the rest of the country philosophically on making the market the ruler of actions that sometimes the market should not be in charge of everything. For example, healthcare, I think, should not be a private for-profit system. Healthcare should be a public good, like the environment, education, roads. It's part of the basic infrastructure of a country. And I would argue that the general welfare tells us we're on the wrong path there. Uh, I would like to think the country to think more about general welfare and less about individual rights and liberties. Being a citizen is not just about having certain freedoms, it's also about participating in the government of the country and being aware of your history. And all too often, especially with the Trumpist right, there is a lack of knowledge about American history. They, they think they know their history, um, but they, it tends to be very narrow and too often derived from movies. I mean, I had a conversation with a Trumpist last year in which he was going on about people trying to change the constitution. And I said, you know, it was designed to be changed. That's why they're called amendments. I've had that experience too. There's, there's a way in which Hollywood history in some eyes, some people see that as the real history when it's, it's Hollywood's history, right? Um, yeah. A couple of points you make in your epilogue that surprised me. Some of the things you're emphasizing knowing history, of course, I agree with that and expected you to say that. You talk about broadening our political vocabulary, general welfare, but you also talk about what you, what you, claim, what you describe as reclaiming the definition of un-American and rehabilitating happiness. Those two elements I wanted you to talk about a bit. Sure, unlike most of the countries, uh, I think you could talk about what defines a Frenchman, but you're not gonna find it in a document. It would be a way of life. It would be an attitude. It would be how they think about food and wine and family and meals. But we know what it means to be an American. We have a document, the Constitution, that lays it out. So if a congressman or somebody running for Congress slugs a reporter, that's un-American. If college students prevent somebody from speaking on a college campus because they disagree with that point of view, that's un-American. It violates the Constitution. And so we can see what it is. One thing I love about this is somebody who became a citizen yesterday has every right 
that somebody has who's been here for 200 years. And they are equal before the law. And that's such a revolutionary thought that we should not lose touch with it. What was the, you wanted to ask me about one other aspect. Your, your, your discussion of happiness and you make a distinction oh, yeah. between happiness and materialism, it seemed to me. Yeah, very much. That's a good way of putting it. I wish I thought of it. Um, happiness and materialism. Uh, it's important because in the Declaration of Independence, uh, there was the discussion of this pursuit of happiness. Jefferson uses it, I think, two times in the first uh, three paragraphs. But it is not what we think of as happiness. I mean, for us, it's, happiness tends to be personal self-indulgence, drugs, sex, alcohol, video games, fun. Uh, Jefferson had a more elevated view, is about being wise, prudent, um, careful. Um, these are the terms he uses in defining happiness. However, a problem with this is in his Epicurean philosophy, he also thinks of happiness as avoiding pain. And for him, I think this also comes to mean emotional distance. Hmm. One thing that really puzzles me about Jefferson is the, the more you, as I said, the more you know about Washington, the more you admire him. The more you know about Jefferson, the less you know about him, the less you understand him. You know, it's like trying to wrestle with a giant marshmallow, Jefferson. His personality recedes, it walks away from you. And it's partly because of this discrepancy between his words and his actions. One thing, one behavior pattern that intrigues me about him, as we know now, he basically takes as his wife, the slave Sally Hemings, without the trappings of marriage. Yet all of his life pursues romantic entanglements with married women. And I think that's because there's no prospect of having to marry them. Hmm. Interesting. So the, the final question I wanted to ask you uh, is you have, such, have had such a long career covering uh, military affairs. Um, do these ideas, do these principles still matter to the US military? And one of the reasons I asked this question is because I often have the good fortune of educating military officers who come through the university, often mid-career. And it seems to me that they're often the odd ducks. Uh, I know sometimes like a Petraeus or a McMaster, someone like that can rise to the top, but in general, they're actually taking a big career risk when they come back to the university to study. And, and I often wonder, and I'm repeating what they've said to me in some cases, you know, have we developed a military set of institutions that actually uh, discourage this kind of thinking that you are that you're encouraging in your book. It's a good question, and I think yes, the answer is yes. Uh, the model of Washington as a learning general is not the model we have for generalship now. Uh, in fact, in many ways, the model discourages the learning general. It um, by rotating commanders in and out, nobody has a chance to really come to understand the situation and then begin adjusting to it. And there is an anti-intellectualism to the US military. I used to say about David Petraeus that he had three strikes against him in the US Army. Uh, he liked reporters, he liked dealing with Congress, and he had a PhD from Princeton. Uh, and the, that last was probably unforgivable. Uh, I only wish the US Army paid as much attention to education as it does to physical prowess. Everybody knows who the officers are who go to ranger school and graduate with a ranger tab for their shoulders. Nobody cares who's number one at the Command and General Staff College because a degree from the military education institution has no currency, it's not important. And that's not true 40 or 50 years ago. 
when Eisenhower was number one in his class at the Commander General Staff College, everybody in the Army knew it. These days, no one cares. Why? Um, it's what in the Army is called no major left behind. Um, basically, everybody gets a low-grade education and moves on, and the people who excel are resented for doing so. Well, I wish we were ending on a more optimistic note on that, but hopefully there'll be change. But one thing is great though, is I am so pleased with this evening's pairing. Uh, Jeremy, always great to see you. Tom, thank you for writing this book. It's really an important, an important study. And I, I, I can well imagine how much you enjoyed uh, going back to the 18th century a little bit over the last, last few years. So let me remind everyone, I, I hope you will purchase a copy of the book, either at interrobangbooks.com or at any bookstore in your own community. Everyone stay safe. We'll see you again soon. Be sure to follow us on our website or on our YouTube channel. Good night, everyone. Thank you.